0: Welcome everyone to episode 29 of the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. Thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. And as always, I say thank you to the interviewees who share their time and memories. This episode's interviewee grew up in the 1930s and 1940s in Wanoona, not far from Balls Paddock. During his childhood and teenage years, he played football at school, and a club level for Winona. Additionally he was proficient in playing tennis and cricket. Ultimately Barry Salisbury chose football and in his amazing career he played at club level, state level and international level for Australia. I will be forever grateful that he gave me over two hours of his time whereby we talked about teams, various subjects and several players. I have split this podcast into two parts for this reason, and although it might not be optimal for you, the listener, I apologise, but I couldn't help myself asking Barry multiple questions. Barry is a humble gentleman, and I sincerely appreciate and respect the career he had and the time he allowed me over the phone. I was delighted to have interviewed Barry, and I hold him in high esteem. Please enjoy part one of this interview. Welcome, everybody, to the Football United vs Soccer City podcast. I'm uh, extremely fortunate and very respectful to have a interstate interview today, um, and uh, formerly of of the South Coast area, and we'll get it into that. And I'd like to welcome Barry Salisbury on the line from Canberra. Barry, welcome.
1: Thank you, thank you very much, Travis. It's pleasant to be here. Now,
0: we'll, we'll go through a, a manner of things in terms of uh, where you played, um, who you played with, and and um, some interesting points in terms of players or games and coaches, all of them. Um, but, you know, I guess I for the people that, um, the 60 to 120 people that listen to this podcast, um, Barry uh, um, was born in the late 30s and um and then after a, a certain period of time which we'll go into had, had played in the the different tiers of the game in terms of playing for his country playing for his state um playing for his region and playing club football so we'll 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 get all into all that Barry
1: yes yeah, certainly yes
0: so um can we start first at, at the beginning Barry in terms of um your first memory of the game of football soccer
1: Right, well, the first, the, my first memories uh, are very early, and I was only young, but I lived within uh, hearing distance of the ball, old Balls paddock, okay. and on Saturdays as a little kid, I remember hearing the roars of the crowd coming over through the atmosphere, and uh, <laughs> I was a, 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 a very welcome listener to those sounds because you could hear the crowd call out, you could even hear the ball being kicked sometimes, And uh, So that played a very significant part in my early days. And I had a grandfather who lived with my family for a while. He was a a former Polman. uh, He came to Australia to live and brought some of his skills of, of soccer with him. And I think I was about five when my mother purchased a little pair of football boots. And I recall my grandfather being delighted as he sat on the veranda and watched me kick a tennis ball around in the backyard but um, so I not only had an interest in that side of the family but my other grandfather was also a soccer player and he played for Nuna and uh, he played in a team that won the local premiership in in uh, 1908 and so I had encouragement all around and uh, that was built upon by being growing up in a in a sporting family My dad uh, had played soccer as a kid and he'd given it away and he was more into tennis than he was into soccer at at that stage. But um, he was always uh, helpful and encouraged me to always kick with both feet. So that, that helped. (laughs) <laughs> that advice helped all through my life.
0: And, and, but, what, um, and what about, um, sorry to interrupt, what about um, the name of uh, both grandfathers? Because as you said, one played for Wununa and one played for Robbinsville. And for the people that don't know Robbinsville, that was the rule.
1: Yes. Well, his name was Birch, yep. Um, Charlie Birch, yep. And he... Uh, as I said, also had a connection to you. Might have heard of Travis Birch?
2: Yes,
0: yes.
1: Who was who was an administrator in the fifties and sixties, and then even into the seventies with South and South Coast United. So we shared that grandfather. Oh, okay. Um, and the other the other grandfather was John Salisbury, and he also played with Balmain at one stage, um, but I, I was you know I wasn't born then, but. but uh, But so that was the sort of background I had and of course it enabled me to get into football very early and I played with uh, Winoona teams and one of the people responsible for developing my interest was a man called Sonny Love. I'm sure most people have heard of that name. Sonny had been a very good player for Winoona and Thoreau, he was in the... 1927 uh, Thoreau team won the Gardener's Cup, which was the big challenge cup of those days. Yeah. And Sonny was... Uh, he and his wife, Millie, were, were fanatics. And I spent many, many of my younger days at their home kicking a, a ball in their backyard and playing with their sons, Dave and John, who were both very good players. And Sonny Love was... Not, not only was inspirational to me... But he was inspirational to a lot of other Wanona kids, and I think from memory, I think there were at least three internationals who passed through, under Sonny's care and uh, direction. So, and, he, uh, so
0: you, he, you're saying um, that you know, apart from playing for Winona Public School, that when you played your junior football for Winuna, Sonny was was the coach, or he
1: was he was the person responsible for organising everything, oh, wow. and he he would he would enable. Uh, a few other people to help him out and they, I think he coached the under-14s and there was an under-14B team so he needed another person and that person uh, was was one of my first managers and his name was Harry Flood Mm. and um, we went on down that track and uh, in those days it it was under-14 there was nothing below that so that if you were 8 or 9 as I was you didn 't always get a game, sometimes you sat on the <laughs> sideline and watched until they considered that you were good enough to play so it was and so the competition was very, very hard at Winuna to break into a team, but eventually I did, and um yeah, we won a couple of competitions, and that and it was another thing that makes you want to go further in the game, and also living within my home within three three quarters of a mile of my home were three internationals. Uh, One of them was Mickey Duff. Yep. One of them was Charlie Stewart. Yep. And the other one was Jimmy Cunningham. Wow. They're names that uh, would be familiar to anybody who knows anything about soccer. So I knew those people personally. So that was another incentive that made me want to go on and do things. As a matter of fact, in 1947... My dad took me took me to the Sydney Cricket Ground yep. to watch three Australian players play in the Australian team against South Africa, and uh, that was a that was a wonderful experience for me to have. And because I knew I knew I didn't know Jimmy Cunningham very well, yep. but I knew Charlie and uh, I knew Teddy Drain. I used to go and stand behind the goals when they had training and kick the ball back when it came. <laughs> Over the goalposts, so so I knew them and I watched them train. So I that was an inspiration to to see those people and, um, and know them and see them play against South Africa. And I made a promise to myself that I'd come back here one day and play. And so that was that was uh, another thing that happened. But they were the sort of uh, things that happened in my in my early days. And I remember playing in an Illawarra Under Twelve team that won the. State championships. Yep. We played at Lambert Park, and a couple of the uh, members of that team went on to play for grade and the outstanding player in that Illawarra team was a, a young bloke called Warren Kerr. Yep. And and Warren was a he was oh, very fit and very strong, and um, I think he virtually won the game for us. He was so good. So uh, yeah, that was that was in nineteen forty nine. So uh, yeah, so I. Some of the people I later played against, I also had an experience with them at junior football level.
0: And, and in terms of um, sort of not talking about soccer for a brief moment, um, like you said, your dad had an interest in tennis and, and you played tennis and, and, and cricket, obviously, in the summer months. So um, was there a point well, in time that you had to choose between oh the yeah, three, the oh three yeah. sports <laughs> because you were relatively uh, good at bo- all three? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, well, I, yeah, I wouldn't say i was good, but I, I played them and uh, played them to a fair degree of, ex, uh, of expertise. But um, it, was, it was a very difficult thing actually to have to choose, and I was often in trouble because I was caught up in football and and then I was caught up in in tennis. <laughs> but um, so eventually I gave the tennis away and focused. I, I think I was about sixteen when I stopped playing tennis and. I just devoted myself to becoming a better football player. But um, I had some some great experiences. Oh, and I played. See, that's that's what kids did in those days. You either played sport or you didn't do anything or you went (laughs) up the bush and went looking for birds' uh, eggs or something. So I was just caught up in sport, and um, that's what we did. So in summer, it was either cricket or a little bit of tennis round in, and or in winter, it was football, and that was it. But... But yeah, so I did have those experiences, and and I played against uh, um, I played against uh, the Sheffield Shield team, and they, they each year they come to Wollongong and play the Illawarra District, and yep. I think I was picked in the Illawarra team because I was young. I don't think it was because I was so outstanding. It was just yep. that I was fairly young and playing first grade, and. Uh, in tennis, I also managed to get a game against a black called Fred Stolly, oh, wow. who went on to become a Davis Cup star. And
2: yeah, definitely. Yeah, I
1: think he won the US singles at one stage. But um, yeah, but that was all left behind when I devoted myself to um, to um, football. But and the the big split came in 1960 when I was playing with Canterbury, when the cricket team had qualified for the grand final or the final of the Illawarra Cricket Competition. Yeah. And uh, the coach at Canterbury at the time was a man called Joe Vlasic, a Hungarian. And if you've ever if you ever, ever met a Hungarian, the only thing they think about is football. <laughs> and, and so he naturally assumed that I would be playing in this soccer trial. <laughs> and I had great trouble getting across to him that I had to play. I couldn't let my mates down in Winona because we were in the final, but... That meant nothing to him, and so uh, he was very upset. So he said, how much are they paying you to play cricket? And I said, nothing. And he said, well, Canterbury's paying you money to play, and they've just bought you an old motor car for you to travel to (laughs) Sydney in. He said, do you have an obligation? Anyway, my obligation at that time was the cricket final. So I played in the cricket final, and we lost. And um, then... That was it. So I, they said, never again. You will do as we tell <laughs> you. So, so I signed another contract with them, and, and that was the agreement that I would have to give my preference to football. So so that's where the split came, <laughs> Travis. And uh, thereafter, it was nothing but football. And uh, I'm afraid I met some more fanatics further down the track, and, <laughs> and they were just as exclusively football as Joe Velasquez was. So Jimmy Kelly was another one he. He he thought that there was no life outside football. Well, I guess I can't.
0: I guess I can't really talk. I'm uh, obviously uh, conducting these interviews with uh, past players, coaches, and administrators in the game of football in the area. So uh, I'm I'm a bit of a fanatic myself. Uh, so in terms of before we get to 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 Joe and, and to Jimmy, um, in terms of your junior career, where did um Did Winoona Junior Soccer Club, or was it just one club, did they play at Balls Paddock, your junior
1: football as well? Yes, they did. That that was one of the reasons. In those days, uh, Winoona, Balls Paddock was Winoona's home ground, Winoona Bullo State League team. They played there. All of the age groups for Winoona played at Balls Paddock. The Winoona primary school team trained and played at Balls Paddock. And I remember on a Friday afternoon when we were playing our matches in that primary competition, the old fellow, his name was Cuthbert, I recall. Okay. He would, he would be marking out the ground for the state league game f- on the Saturday morning, uh, as we were playing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, and the grounds, of course, Memorial Park, Carmel's, which is where the Rangers and United later played.
2: Right. Yep. And
1: Balgownie were just the same. Everybody played on that field and the, Fields by the time June came around, had no grass, they were bumpy, and it was you know it made the game harder to play if we'd had beautiful grounds then we would have i think we would have had a better class of football served up but you know, I remember when the, even when the first grade teams played there you know they played under harsh conditions because the grounds were bumpy and rough, and the ball bounced everywhere and in those days, we used laced leather laced balls and And they were when they got wet. That was like a lump of lead that you had to try and head or kick. But uh, yeah, so the grounds in those days were were very poor, and the facilities were very poor. All of which tended to put the game down a little bit. It didn't develop as it should have because of the poor facilities. Because of
0: the frequency of use. Oh, sorry. Because of the frequency of use. In terms oh of yes, so yeah, all of
1: all of that, yes, and they were just used too much, never given any rest, and all of the grounds in Sydney were the same. Uh, I made my debut at Gladesville Oval. It was on top of a hill. I, I can't remember the name of the street now, but it was it poured the first day I played, and uh, I remember this cold breeze sweeping along <laughs> the ground. But and after the we were all soaking wet and muddied, and I remember going to the dressing shed and cold water and uh, oh, the, the facilities were awful the only ground that was of, of a reasonable standard was the E.S. Marks Field which was built in about 1955 To uh, and
0: that was an athletics it, ground as well an wasn't athletic
1: it? Field. And it was built for the 1956 uh, athletes uh, before they went down to Melbourne to compete in the Olympic Games So, but that was the best ground in Sydney because uh, Prague and I think Ekoa Played there in the early days at the Marksville, It was it was a good ground and good good facilities for changing and having a shower, whereas some of the other places were appalling.
0: <laughs> in terms of that junior career, what what were the colours that um, Winoona Public School and and Wununa, the junior Winoona teams? What what colours did you play in?
1: Well, we played in red and blue, and <laughs> all the teams played in red and blue. And I remember in 1948, in those days we still had rationing from World War Two, yep. and um, it was decided that uh, the school would need some uh, clothing coupons to buy the necessary, necessary <laughs> material to make up the set of shirts. <laughs> so that's what we had to do. We had to get it, first of all, go around and get the clothing coupons to yep. enable the material to be purchased. But the, the, the colours were always red and blue. Um, For Wanoon when I played with them, but apparently in the, Sometime in the twenties or thereabouts, they did play in red and green for a little while, but okay. it was always red and blue in my time. Yep.
0: So it was predominantly a red shirt, and and where was the blue? Was the blue on the sleeves or a pocket on the front? Or
1: well, yeah, there was a there was a WB Wannunabulle on the left hand pocket, yep. um, and the the shirts could have been. Sometimes blue with a red stripe, sometimes red with a blue stripe. Okay. So yeah, it was yeah. So it was varied slightly, but always red and blue in my time.
0: And and when you first um, went into the senior ranks at Wununa in the state league, um, how did that come about? And um, what what are your first memories of the coaches or administrators and players in in that first uh, senior year that you played?
1: Right. Well. Um, I was, I've was, been very lucky, and I was very lucky in my my football career, too, because um, first go, I, we came straight out of under-18s. We won the under-18 competition in our first year of competition, which all meant we were 16 turning 17. Yep. And um, Billy Williams, who was the coach of Winoona at the time, came to my home and asked me to come out and, and go up and trial for the team, and I said, oh, it won't be good enough. I, I'll be playing under 18, so I think. He said, no, no, unless you try, you never know." So anyway, so I thought, oh, well, if Billy Williams asked me and he he's played for Australia, then I'll give it a go. So I did and I was picked in reserve grade after the first few trial matches and I played, my first match was at Balls Paddock in the reserve grade side and we were hammered uh, very badly, but the first grade team was hammered too, we played Canterbury, Maryville, <laughs> <Yep.
2: laughs>
1: so that was a, a foretaste of things to come. But um, I uh, was picked in the reserve grade side again, and in those days Wununa travelled by bus to the to the city to, to play the matches. Yep. So I was on the bus and uh, thinking it was raining and <laughs> raining in <laughs> Winuna as we left, and I thought, hello, it's going to be one of those days again." <laughs> and this hand came on my shoulder and said, uh, "You'll be playing first grade today." <laughs> Andy Downs uh, has the flu, and I thought, oh, you know, the first so I, I got the panics, but anyway, I, I went on, and uh, I must have done reasonably well, because uh, thereafter, I was always picked in the first grade side, but um, in, the, in at that time, Winona officials probably had the right thought in mind by uh, developing the, the, uh, the team from a, a group of young people, young players, but I've always felt since then that you can't have too many young players in at the one time. They need some experience. Yeah. Yeah. You need people who can help them and advise them and get them through the rough spots. I I always remember one of the young players and I won't mention a name, but uh, he was standing in the, uh, at Lambert park. Both teams lined up before you ran onto the field. And there was a set of half plays while Joe Marston was still playing in England. And, the centre half was a bloke called Charlie Manning, and as they as the teams waited in the uh, the little corridor, he saw his opponent and leaned over the young boy making his debut, and he said, "If you get near me today, I'll break your leg." And um, <laughs> that's you know half <laughs> yeah. of the course, I guess. But anyway, he terrified the young kid. <laughs> I don't think the young kid kicked the ball all day. He kept looking for. Where Charlie was, but <laughs> because Charlie was a pretty powerful man but but um so um that was um how it was, I guess you know that's how you get your blooding you somebody wants to make you feel a bit uh a little bit uh, a few, afraid A few, to men- do a few mental
0: about... mental mind games uh can can help out in the field,
1: yeah, well, look um that was getting back to horn and and uh, the fact that there were too many young people. We, you know, we, we just lacked experience, and but what we had was a, a mobility and a speed, and what we what we lacked in what we lacked in real knowledge and skills, we made up for in effort, and so we. I think we finished about sixth on the table or thereabouts, and we had a lot of draws. It, this was, we this didn't was, win a lot of was, games. Um, this was
0: fifty five, wasn't it?
1: Fifty five, correct. Yes, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so we even managed to get to the semi-finals of the state cup. In that year, and that was that took about four rounds, I think, to get to the semi-finals, because it included all of the teams from the north as well as the south. South. And yeah, I should say that in those days, they had the two divisions. You had Illawarra or South Coast, and Sydney. South Coast and Sydney were combined, and then you had the Newcastle competition. And all of those teams were uh, went into the uh, state Cup and draw. There was draw was made. And so that's how you uh managed to get into the state cup and uh, so you had to win four games, I think to win it so so we managed to get to the semi finals, which was pretty good effort for a young team like that but um the next year we uh we didn't do as well as we had the previous year, but uh i, I can't explain why that happened, but we just didn't do very well and um <clears throat> so we finished near the bottom and then in 1956 there was the split
0: yeah th- and that's that's what I was going to ask um and, and before I ask about the split um in that sort of 55 56 and 57 period where you you played for for Wununa Bulai um who who was the coach of the team or or
1: or the manager well well the coach the first year was Billy Williams yep and then he was followed by Dennis Harrington who I have a very high regard for I think he's one of the most knowledgeable people that I ever met in football. But he was he um he didn't stay in football. He ended up at Thruall Leagues Club and uh oh, okay. I think League through a Leagues Club might or well, league team might have had their all their success when he was sort of the president of the uh Thrill leagues club. But um but he was very knowledgeable and uh he uh, it was it was it was a great help to me anyway and uh I, I was sorry that he didn't stay longer in football With when the federation broke away and Winona decided to stay with the association, which was the wrong decision at the time. Yep. Dennis retired to the sidelines and his interests uh, were centred around through a league's club. So, so yeah, So that was unfortunate for Winona. But uh, during the split, um, you're probably familiar with it, but a group of uh, ethnic clubs, and they were getting a lot of people following them, far more than the association teams were. And they didn't... I don't think the officials at the time realised what an impact um, immigrants were making into our societies. And they simply overlooked them and wouldn't give some of these ethnic teams a chance. In 1956, they introduced Sydney, Austral and Prague to the First Division competition. And... In 1957, um, Hakoa, which was which represented the Jewish community, won the second division, and they decided they wouldn't put them up. I don't okay. know what the reason was. So uh, these clubs and uh, Arpia, Arpia, which was the Italian club, also um, had a bit of strength and a bit of administration strength. So so they um, they helped form the breakaway. And uh, it was called the New South Wales Soccer Federation. And they turned things around totally in terms of players because part of the offer that they they were making to uh, players and to clubs was that the players would be paid. Every club had to pay their players. And that had to be done. Uh, If they weren't prepared to do that, then they weren't prepared to accept them into the competition. And up till that time, I think the first year I played, I played all of the matches by one which
0: was 55 I,
1: yep. In 55 I received 10 pounds for the year and I, each week I think I had to pay two shillings to cover my insurance. Okay. So so if you work that out I had 18 lots of two bob which would be 36 uh, that'd be 1 pound 10 or not say 2 pound. Yep. So out of the 10 pounds I was already outlaying 2 pound. So you can see just how how uh, it was definitely a, a, an amateur game, and uh, yep. but to so say the federation came along and offered players those, and they also offered a different way of running the game, and the the, the idea was that the clubs would run it rather than a group of um, administrators.
0: And and in terms of um, uh, before we get further into that split, where you then move from Manuna Buli in '57 to to Canterbury in 58. Well, that was the reason.
1: uh, Winoona was given an opportunity to go to the Federation and they called a players' meeting and um, a representative from the Federation came and addressed the players and then a representative from the Association came and addressed the players and the players voted overwhelmingly to um, stay in the Association. So um, Canterbury... And the Federation clubs then looked at the players and thought, well, you know, we, we can pick the eyes out of this team and make them an offer. And so they did. And I I felt very strongly that the Federation was going to win this battle, the war. Yep. And so, um, so when Canterbury made the offer, I sort of said, well... Oh, and at the time, I was teaching at a place called Bynalong, which is out near Yass. Yep. And I said, look, I, I can't sign a contract with you because... I'll probably be out there again, and I can't get, get can't can't come back here to train. So I'll probably do something else out there. And they said, "What if we get you a transfer?" <laughs> and Winuna had been working on the transfer too, but I don't know. I don't know how successful that has been. So one of the officials told me that I could forget about it because he was on the delegation that met the regional director, <laughs> and um, he said, I, don't think, I think we're going to Byron long again." So Canterbury. Said, "What if we get you moved uh, to to this region?" And I said, "Oh, if you can do that, <laughs> I'd be delighted." Because I, I looked like not playing no football out at Binalong. And um, so, on a Wednesday night in mid January, there was a knock on my family my family's door, and uh, a gentleman called Jimmy Bellwood and another one called Frank Nobbs said, "We've got you a transfer. You'll be going to Gwynville School." uh how does oh, wow. that grab you and i said oh that's <laughs> superb so uh they said now will you sign the contract and i said yes all right i'll sign the contract now so i did and uh billy williams who was the previously the coach and in australian international they signed him as well so he was my traveling companion for a little while and um yeah so that's why we ended up at canterbury but the offer from Canterbury uh, was so overwhelmingly interesting in that they were a top club. they were all it was an Australian club, they were all young blacks who yep. ran around the field and really enjoyed it. they were all good mates, and I thought, well, this is a good club to join. So that was another reason, and I was very much welcome there. Um, I played a few trial matches and i i uh, i wouldn't I didn't think that they were terribly impressed with what I'd done. And I think in the first match of the of the um, competition, which was the they called it the Kennard Cup, then it later okay. became the Ampole Cup. Yep. Um, they played the first match, and we played Sydney Austral, and I think we beat them on corners. So the next week I was picked, and we played uh, Concord, and I think we beat them eight nil or something. And then the next team was Prague, we played, and. They had the two Austrian imports Baumgartner and Yaros, and we beat them 4-2, I think. And I managed to score two goals, so um, that was good. And then we got into the final and played a cover in the final, and somehow or another, I managed to score another one. And so I was, you know, sort of being pushed into the, and promoted and considered to be a, a top first-grade player for them. So then, of course, um, the rest of the season followed and. We had more success. We won the uh, we won the uh, grand final, uh, beat Auburn two one in the final, and then at the end of uh, or just prior to that, we won the Federation Cup by beating Prague. So so we had we won everything. Now I think where the Canterbury Marigold was the only team to have achieved the triple um, championship. Uh, Prague the next year won two of them, but they couldn't win. The third, so yeah, so it was a it was pretty good start at Canterbury. Great
0: trifecta uh, that year. So, so in terms of um, the split, um, when you're talking about um, because for two seasons there was two concurrent um, That's se- right. seasons two going on. W- was there any yep. um, fallback for you personally um, when you went up to to Canterbury? Because, like oh, you yes, said, so there, I said, there I, was I, there was other. You know, your vocation in life is a teacher, so instead of working out in the country um, you got to you know apply your trade close to home so that factored yes. in as part of the decision um, yes so was there any fallback from from people at Winoona Bulleye or just even locally
1: oh no there's a lot of nastiness a lot of unpleasantness and um, some people I'd known all my life stopped speaking to me and, um, and yeah I, I felt a bit of pain over that and one day an old fellow that I'd known since I was about five grabbed hold of me and said, son, get your chin up. Um, he said, you've done nothing to be ashamed of. As a matter of fact, everybody here should be proud of what you're achieving. He said, but there are some people in this life who can't see that. He mm. said, and so you've got to be big enough and to overcome that. Disregard the sort of feeling you are, um, you're, you're getting from some members in the community. Get on and do your thing and show, prove to them that you are who you are, you know. So that sort of bucked me up and uh, helped me a lot. And I was still playing cricket for Wununa at that stage. And so I, you know, I was still, <laughs> I still <laughs> considered myself to be a Winona boy, you know. So, well, But it was it was hurtful, yes, when people said that. And I think on local radio, um, the p- players who went to the Federation were criticised again and uh, no names, no pack drill. But, but yeah, it was, it was an unpleasant time from that point of view but it only took 2 years and then um Winoona ended up playing in the district competition because yeah, they they were, there was no competition for them to go into yeah so and so that and, was, and, um,
0: yeah. and I guess there was some uh, other splits which you're not aware of in terms of the Coromel club you know um you know they Oh yeah um, there, that was
1: nasty too for the
0: they, yeah that was they split up as well in terms of uh, Coral United was there before it formed to become South Coast United. Um, that's correct. Yes, that's so, right. That's um, the way it
1: was. Yeah, and Coral Rangers was the team that Coral United came from. And most of the officials um, were very thick in terms of staying with the association. They they believed in the association, and they uh, they I think they banned Coral United from using Memorial Park. Heck, yeah, and. Um, at, at early in the season, and then I think it, later in the, on it was turned around, and Carmel United did get to play at Memorial Park. But, but initially they they wanted to ban them, and uh, yeah, it was very unpleasant for uh, for everybody in those days. It, it wasn't a pleasant two years. But as I said, uh, Carmel United established itself, and they were very Carmel Rangers then becoming Carmel United. That was a very good team. They had um, really hard working. Uh, really experienced players and so hard to beat, particularly at Memorial Park. Uh, I don't know whether I ever... I think I might have played in one team that won at Memorial Park, but they we, they used to flatten us when Winona played them because they you know, used all their experience and expertise and we were only kids and so we, I don't think we ever beat Carmel at uh, on one occasion, I think. Uh, when I went to Canterbury, we beat them a couple of times at Memorial Park, but I don't recall... Um, I don't recall winning a match for an Noona there. Yeah, so they were a good, team. And, very
0: that good Cor- team. and that Coromel team, um, you know, in that mid-50s, they were, you know, the out-and-out best team. And in the latter part of the 50s still did very well um, they did. as well. They so did. so who were some of the the players that sort of come to mind when, when you played against them that you thought, wow, this is uh, impressive when you played against them?
1: Right. Well, well, um, Bobby Bignor was a yep. very good player and... Bobby was a, he was older than a lot lot older than I was. He he was a very experienced player. As a matter of fact, you'd have to say that he was at, to getting towards the end of his career. But in 1956, Bob was the captain of the first Olympic team, and um, he he was such a lovely man. He uh, he pull he, when he knocked you down, <laughs> he'd help you up. <laughs> and my mother said on one occasion. He's a nice man, that Bob Big. And I said, why is that, Mum? She said, because every time he knocks you over, he helps you get up. And I said, if he was, if he was a nice bloke, he wouldn't knock me down in the first place. I said, but, but you're right, he is. And he was. He was a lovely man. And um, I played cricket against him. He played for Carmel. And, and um, after the 56 games, um, as I said before I was working, as a bread, bread deliverer. And Bob, Bob came to the uh, – he later bought the uh, bread run out from this fellow I work for, yep. but he, coming back from the uh, 56 games, he came to me and said, I've got a training a training hint for you, that he'd picked up in Melbourne when he was okay. down there, and he, he said, you know, do this when you're training, and it helped, yeah, so that's the sort of black Bob was, he, um, you know, being Coramal or Winundra, it didn't matter, and, and if what he could a, do what, something for somebody that helped them, he did, yes.
0: And what about um, some of the other players in the team? Oh, Bobby Young, like
1: yeah, he was a very good player, Bobby Young, yep. well, they all were, I mean, you can't pick, you can't single out anybody. But they were just a very, very good team. And there's one other player that I thought would have made it to South Coast United if he'd been able to play. And his name was Keith Leamonds. He yep. he was a very good player. And he was a and striker, wasn't he? He was a striker and, yep. and hard and skillful and had a good shot. Yeah. So so I I always uh, I mentioned Bobby Young because he was a very hard man. Matter of fact, one of the Canterbury players. Um, was a, a fellow called Jimmy Moore and Jimmy was a terrific player played inside right yep. and each time he'd come up against Bob Young Bob was left footed and Jimmy tended to move to his right and he, every time Jimmy went to go by him he got it <laughs> Bobby Young used to clean him up all the time <laughs> but uh, I'm sure Jimmy didn't look forward to playing against uh, Coromall Jimmy's now passed away of course um, but uh, no they, they had some very good players and uh and uh, people like uh, i I met uh, people like Davey James and Scouter Willoughby at the end of their yep. careers. I was just breaking into it and uh, they, they were you know they were good competitors and and uh, that's why Coromel was so very successful. They were just a good hard working team, a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and uh, yeah as I said they were very hard to beat.
0: and and in terms of uh... Before we talk more about um, Canterbury and some of your teammates and, and characters in at that club, what about the uh, the aspect of the, the local derby, you know? Because at that point in time, in those sort of mid-50s, um, you know, Bowgownie in the early 50s had got through the Southern League into the um, Association First Division. And then you had Woonabullae yeah. and you had Coromel as well. So you had three clubs. So you, you had a couple of uh, derbies... Every year. Yes. Um how how, yes. how what was it what was it like for you in terms of um being in the town, the crowds, um the build up?
1: Well well it was interesting because uh, as, as you know, playing for Winona School, we, we generally played against Coramal, although he did play Ferry Meadow one year in the final, but um Balgowney was more they produced probably better juniors than Carmel did at that stage. So our our war, if you want to call it that, <laughs> was always with Balgowney. It wasn't so much Coromel yeah. uh, as a junior team, but was, uh, as I said, the uh, Coromel Rangers were an outstanding team. And um, when Wynnum played them, it really wasn't a contest. They were they were too good for us. And uh, but I've got to say, when Balgowney played them, Balgowney had a lot of success against Coromel, <laughs> and I, I think it was mainly because of them. Um, you know, the, the good uh, team spirit that existed at Balgowney and um, a lot of the Balgownie kids were, were always in the rep teams. So you could generally say five or six of Balgownie's juniors would be in each of the age groups yep. that played in the state championships every year. And so some of those people went on to play first grade for Balgownie And uh, yeah, Balgownie had some very, out, very outstanding juniors, very outstanding. And but but they were, they were the ones that gave all the, the scares when when in their local derbies. But but. Um, I don't think we ever got to. Um, we always wanted to beat Balgowny, but uh, I don't think we ever got to um, wanting to beat them as desperately as we wanted to beat Coromel, You know, because <laughs> we never did. But sometimes we'd get a result against Balgowny, but Kilmal we very rarely did. Yeah, they were good.
0: And what about the the crowds at Memorial or Bulls? Bor- well, yeah, Balgownie people got excited. Sports Sports uh, I, I remember
1: playing in an early game at Memorial Park when. When Noona played Coromel in the uh, Sydney Cup final, yep. that was in 1954. And uh, they brought trucks in. <laughs> I, I don't remember how they got them in. They must have taken panels of fencing out, but they brought trucks in so that people could, they could put seats on them and, and people could be elevated and uh, have, a, have a bigger crowd there that could watch the game. Because prior, well, I don't know what, I haven't been to Coromel in years, but. Uh, at one stage, it was like when Noon or in that there was no elevated land. It was flat. It was just yep. a paddock, and everybody was on the same level. So if you were about four back from the fence, you didn't see too much at all. So they later on at uh, Ball's Paddock, they brought in fuel from, uh, I think, one of the collieries or yep. the coke works or somewhere, and built up banks around the ground so that more people could get a better view of it because the crowds grew enormously uh, particularly in the Federation days. But yeah, that was in 54, they brought tracks in and put seats on them so that more people could have a better view of the game. That was in 1954 and Coromel easily beat when in that in that game, another example. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, um,
0: and and in terms of um, going back to, to Canterbury, like you said, you were uh, very successful and, and I, I do this because I'm not a um, a professional interviewer and I keep making this mistake, but We've talked a little bit now about different bits and pieces, but what position did you play and and what was the sort of rough formation in those days?
1: Right, well, um, it was virtually a goalkeeper, two full backs, three wing halves and uh, five forwards. Um, And it doesn't matter how you play them or what you call it. Um, I always think that sometimes we, you know, four, three, four or whatever it is, just it becomes confusing, <laughs> and uh, if you just go out and play football and and remember that you've got to support other people with the ball, and you want their support when you when you've got the ball. But um, yeah, so that's how it was. We uh, the fullbacks were allegedly supposed to mark uh, the centre centre of the paddock, and the yep. the two wing halves were in, inclined to mark out the wingers, yep. and um, and then the the inside forwards. Uh, were supposed to be the constructive and clever people who could create
2: opportunities. Um,
1: yeah. opportunities. And um, then you had the goal... Stri- Centre forward was your goal striker, the goal scorer, and you had two clever wingers who were supposed to be able to dribble past their opponents and pull people out and then either shoot or cross the ball. But um, it, um, as I said, it didn't matter to me how you, what you call it, as long as you try to play and support... Each other and and uh, be clever and make inroads, but the most important thing, in my opinion, is passing. And um, I think if you if you're a poor passer of the ball, then you can't be a good player. Um, particularly if you watch really the, the really great teams of today, the Barcelona's yep. Manchester United, their passing is brilliant, and they know when to pass and how to pass, and the passing is superb. It goes straight to the man, and. Um, um, there was, you know, the people you So, knock the ball in front of the per- person you're knocking it to, then they won't have to stop; they keep going. But the only thing with that is, if you knock it too far, then you get that player into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but uh, no, I, uh, I I'm a great believer in in just playing football, and it, it doesn't matter where you play. I mean, you can play. Any position should be the same. Though I think the Dutch showed us that in yeah. when they played what they call total football, I think.
2: Yeah. And
1: um, yeah, so it, full-backs could move up the field and somebody would drop back to cover them and, and that's how it worked. And, and I, I was never afraid to uh, do that, to run around all over the field and, and limit myself to a particular part of the field because um, and it was one of the reasons I was, that I was able to do that was because of what my father had told me, learn to kick with both feet, or you'll never be a footballer. <laughs> and so, and and the other thing was, when I was a junior, the kid that played inside right, um, I couldn't beat him for his position. So the other position was inside left. So, so I had to do learn to do something with my left foot uh, to get into the team. So so that's how that's what helped me develop my uh, left sided left side of my. Uh, play, but uh, yeah, but it was interesting. So <laughs> that, you um, you
0: played a, a lot of your your football well, I, well, inside off, left?
1: Or? I, I, well, once again, the coach's son wanted to play the position I wanted to play, so I was moved somewhere else. But <laughs> uh, I ended up, I started playing inside left because the inside right was more seemed to be more promising than I was. Then I went from there to right half, and one of the reasons for that was there was a, a player in Winona called Les Gordon, and I always thought he looked terrific on the field so I said, I'll play his position. So then sure enough somebody else was better than in me <laughs> better than me at that. So I then moved to I think I moved to centre half and I was too small to play centre half really. Uh but anyway that's what I played for a while. Then I went back to inside left and, and then I stayed there and uh, I played left half a few times in junior teams and, and then when it became I became into the first grade side, it was inside left and then one of the coaches said, "I think you'd be better at outside left." So I ended up playing outside left. And when I uh, went to Canterbury, I started off at inside left. And I think uh, the player who was playing outside left thought I wasn't giving him the ball the right <laughs> way. So I was switched to left wing, and he and then we we alternated. We could we yeah. could he could play there for a while, and we'd interchange. And so that was a, one of the reasons that I think we were a little bit successful because the uh, opposing teams. Didn't know who was playing where, but <laughs> um yeah. So, but and then I, had, uh, I played right half for Canterbury a couple of times when they had injuries. <clears throat> when I came to South Coast United, when Jim Kelly phoned me and asked me if I was interested in coming back to the coast, I said, "Where would you play me, Jimmy?" So I want want you on the left wing, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, right, okay," because I'd played right half against them in the two previous matches where we'd beaten and them. So and you thought he might, might want you there. there. Oh, no, I thought he might have won me left half. I, <laughs> I I wouldn't have beaten Kelly for any position. He was tremendous. So so I wouldn't have put myself against Kelly. But um, no, so I thought he might want to play me left half. He, anyway, that's what he said. I want you to play left wing. But I lasted there for about um, four games, and uh, we had a problem in the middle of the park. So he said, right, that's it. That's where you'll play. And uh, that's where I stayed until oh, a couple of times during – a. The season, he said, move up to left wing and uh, play there. And I'd look at him and think, I must be going real badly. Anyway, one, after one game, I said to him, Look, Jim, if I'm not good enough to hold my position, put me out of the side. He said, He said you're misinterpreting what I'm doing. He said, I'm showing confidence in you by telling you to move up. That's 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 all I'm doing. So, so anyway, I was a bit defensive over that, I suppose. But anyway, then. Pat Woods, who was a very good fullback for South Coast United and for anybody he played with, he would return to England and um, we didn't have a right fullback. And Jim tried a couple of players and in desperation, I think he turned to me and said, will you have a go? And I said, yes, okay. So it worked. And so I ended up playing um, right fullback in the 1963 grand final. And it was, as everybody knows, it was around then. We managed to beat RP 4 0 and gave them a real building. But uh, so then the next year he said, Right, you I said, Where am I playing this year? He said, Right wing. <laughs> so I I played right wing for about four games and then um he was the Jim was the uh, the select sole selector for the Australian side. And um he said I said, oh, I said, I see Pat's coming back he said, Yes, he said uh, so I said uh, I said, well, I won't beat him for that position. I said he's far too good for me. He said, Oh, he said We'll find a spot for you. Don't you worry about it. Anyway, Everton came out, and um, he'd announced the squad, and he, I was surprisingly picked in the squad. And um, he, um, he, they played a New South Wales team at the cricket ground, and I went up and watched. And he said, what did you think of that? I said, oh, they're magnificent. They're a fantastic team. Easily the best team I've seen in Australia. And he said, what did you think of the right winger? I said, oh, I said, he... He made he made poor old Stuart Sherwin look like he'd never played before. He said, that's the bloke you're going to be marking when you when we play them. And I said, oh, give me a break. <laughs> so anyway, he said, y- you'll stop him. You'll stop him. And uh, he said, you've yeah, g- got every confidence in you. So anyway, as it turned out, I I didn't do too badly against him. But uh, we we got we were hammered by Everton. They were a class above anything I'd ever seen before. And um, they came out here wanting to play. Um, apparently, um, one of the writers in Sydney had written a few articles for an English paper and he said that Australian soccer was now approaching world class and, of course, <laughs> when these people, they were waiting to get Everton when they came. So I don't know who picked up on it, but they came here and they really wanted to play. And the uh, first match, we played them in Melbourne and um, Melbourne it was a pretty quiet place in those days. Six o'clock came and everybody... Was tucked up in bed, so <laughs> they were ready to go on the in the match down in Melbourne. They'd been we played them in Sydney. They, they might have had a bit of nightlife, but anyway, <laughs> they they were well and truly rested and and and, and uh, waiting to get us, us on the field. But anyway, that was that was how that worked. But yeah, that's why I played a lot of positions. I I wasn't um,
0: very versatile then.
1: I, yeah, well I was versatile because I wasn't all that good. <laughs> so I filled in a lot. Yeah. I, <laughs> Well, you're, uh, you're
0: very humble, that's... that's Jack sure. of all
1: trades, yeah, that was me, yeah, master and, of none. And in terms but, of, uh,
0: um, because before we get to, I guess, um, a bit more of South Coast United and and um, and being selected for um, Australia v. Everton in 64, that 59 season, you, you know, Canterbury uh, had had a great year and you'd had a great year. The year, year or before, yeah. Oh, yeah, or yeah. the year well, before,
1: but... Yeah, but Who was I was thinking? very lucky. I was very lucky that year as well because um, I was picked in the state squad, and it was the first time a state squad had ever been assembled and trained as a team. We we had a week's training in Camden yep. before we played the matches, and and uh, I was uh, I was picked in the squad, but I didn't think I'd make the team because the Austrians uh, were dominating at Baumgartner, Yaros, Sagi um um uh, uh, all of these people had toured Australia with FK Austria in nineteen fifty seven and so there wasn't much hope for local players. So I'd resigned myself to sort of the fact oh, I'd have a I'd have a week's training and enjoy it and learn a lot from these people. And um anyway, on the Wednesday I think it was, Les Shineflug came down with the flu and uh, the interpreter, we, we needed an interpreter because there were so many different Nationalities in this team. Oh, wow. But um, we had uh, this fellow who could speak about seven languages, and he grabbed hold of me and said, Oh, he said, You you might be playing on Saturday. You know, Les is ill, and they're talking about you. And I thought, Oh.
0: And this is, we're, we're <laughs> yeah. talking 1959
1: here, aren't we? 1959, yes. And um, so I was hauled into the team two days before they play, we played, and strangely, I managed to score a goal. And uh, in the first, oh, 25 minutes, which helped ease a, a few um, nerves. And then I got into the game, and I thought I played fairly well after that. And with, and I played well enough to stay in the state squad. Well, Les was cleared of the flu the next week, but they preferred to pick me. So so that was uh, positive. And then as a result of those displays, Jimmy Moore and myself were picked in the association teams because the Australian Soccer Association was still running soccer at the national, national level, level. Yep. the New South Wales Federation was only running it in New South Wales.
2: Wales.
1: Yep. So w- Jimmy and I flew down to Melbourne, and the uh, and, uh, hearts of Midlatham were a good team as well, but, but we we were running onto the field, and, and the fellow that was playing left after me, a nice bloke called Hodson, he just shook my hand and said, oh, I said, welcome, welcome to the team, and I said, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I first... First time we'd ever spoken a word, and we're running onto the field, you know. So that's how much chance you had against some of these teams. And I, I have always maintained that some of the club teams were better than um, better than the international teams. I mean, when you had say South Africa here, or you had New Zealand here, um, you know they they weren't in the same class as say a club team like um, Ferencvaros or or FK Austria or Austrian Rapid. Yep. And Everton and Chelsea and they, I mean, they didn't come anywhere near them. So it was, you know, you're, you're really up against it. And then to go run onto the field and introduce yourself to the other players was was incredible. You know, just <laughs> just just totally impossible. I mean, it's a team game. And if you don't play as a team, you don't win. It's as simple as that. So, um, so that was
0: sorry to interrupt. Uh, so in terms of um, that New South Wales game before you got selected for Australia, that was against a, a Costa Rican team, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was a team called Deportivo, Suppressor And they were the top club side in uh, in Costa Rica. Yep. And I've since learned in, in subsequent years that even to this day, uh, when they pick in a Costa Rican team, about eight of the players come from Deportivo, Saprissa oh, okay. So it was virtually their, their national side. They, they were pretty good, but they were a bit soft. A, bit, a lot smaller than we were. And they had a lot of ball skill, but... Um, you know, a bit of aggression from uh, some some of our defenders, and they you know they weren't all that keen to mix it. <laughs> but if you if you tried that on with Everton or Chelsea or Hearts or Midlothian, they'd have murdered you because they were always up for the <laughs> up
0: for the, <laughs> the challenge. tough stuff. And and yeah. in terms of <laughs> that, that fifty nine after that state game, getting picked to play against Hearts, uh, what how did you um, I guess feel about that uh, personally? Was there a lot of pride? and um you know oh, pos- yeah. well, positivity you know, around it and and as well your family and
1: yeah. and what well well yeah i i mean i was delighted because that's what i'd been striving for from the time that i went to the cricket ground in 47 yeah. and so it was a was a dream come true and uh, but i have to say that i was terribly disappointed on the um on the, the reception we received from the victorian officials yeah. who were still association people they weren't oh, federation okay. people at that stage and I remember we got off the plane and uh I won't mention his name but this official came up and said oh I'll take you back to your hotel and uh the new the uh, Newcastle players Kevin O'Neill and uh Jack Pettigrew, uh, they'll they'll fly in at uh, they'll be in at half past 8 tonight and the South Australians will be flying in tomorrow morning and the Victorian players will meet you at the ground and so that's it's you know it was just hopeless and um I think you know, one of us said something and um, and uh, I don't think it was well received by those people. But the next week, uh, the Hearts played Australia in Adelaide yep. and um, they, the official from Sydney phoned me and said uh, they picked you again to go to Adelaide. But look, will you not go and play with our club because we've got a lot of injuries and did you have a good time in Melbourne? I said we had a dreadful time, treated yep. very poorly. And I said I'm not all that fussed about going to Adelaide. I said because it'll be the same thing over again because South Australian football was still under control of yep. the uh, the, uh, the association. So there was so, a bit of so a, anyway. A, a, and, I and guess the, a the good thing, the, thing was that Leigh Shine was picked to replace me, so <laughs> so that gave him his first game at that level as well. So so there was so a that hang- there was itself. a
0: hangover from from the split that sort of still stayed. Oh yeah, in the
1: game well it like, well it, so it took until. Um, the australian soccer federation wasn't formed until about 1963 or 64 yeah, okay. and um so yeah it took a long time and even even in places like south australia and even queensland they sort of hung on to the, the old association thing for a lot longer but in sydney yeah, everybody could see that it was it had done uh, such good things for the for the players and and, and, for the and, game yeah, yeah. And it was better organized. And these people, the people from Central Europe, were just fanatics. I mean, they just loved football. And uh, so they were put their heart and soul into it. And there were some very astute business people on board. A bloke called uh, Bill Kennard. Um, yep. He he was one of the people. And there a lot of doctors. Dr. Seaman became the first president of the Australian Soccer Federation. And um, a lot of business people who... Who knew how to run a business, and their expertise was used uh, to develop football. And so, and in more recent times, you had uh, Lowie, yeah. Frank Lowie, you know, come in with his business expertise and help get us to where we are today.
0: And in in, in terms of '59, um, when you did play against Hearts, um, who who was the coach at that time? Was it Joe? Uh, Joe no, 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 or, we didn't have a coach. You didn't have a coach? <laughs>
1: we didn't have a coach, no. No, no the, the captain was Kevin O'Neill, yep. and Kevin sort of opened the proceedings by saying, uh, well, congratulations, everybody, we're here. Let's go out there and do the best we can. And that's what you did. You did the best you can. But those, those, these people you're playing against were professionals, and and um, to go onto the field in, under those circumstances was just incredibly stupid. Um, you had to had to have preparation and meet each other as a team and even play a game before you'd played against a good team like that. But uh, and they, their attitude too was oh well you're only amateurs anyway. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember I I took the ball from the captain on one occasion. I said oh I've done well here and I went to go away in both legs. We shot out from under me, <laughs> and he said, you, "You don't do that to me, son." So, so there you go. So, so that was you yeah, know. I mean, they was the clearly superior, and they were professionals, and and um, that was the attitude that you know you you're an amateur, and I'm a pro, and they don't, don't even think of doing anything that's uh, going to embarrass me. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, we uh, we were hammered in in that game, and we were hammered uh, against Everton, and uh, um, yeah, it was a wasn't a uh, wasn't a, a great experience to be hammered like that by by the touring teams, but they were so much better than we were. That's what it came down to.
0: And in, in terms of um, if we go back to Canterbury Marrickville, when you had your your five seasons there, um, can you can you talk through some of the the players or characters in the team? Um, you know, oh yeah, the yeah. likes well, of well, John look,
1: Curry or John Wit Yeah, yeah, well, well, Jack Curry was an Irishman, and of course. I just loved the way he spoke, and <laughs> I was intrigued by him from the moment I hit the place. But a lot of the Australian blacks were there—Bruce Young and Ray Neal, yep. um, Jimmy Moore, Tommy North, um, Eddie Jones, Ronnie Brown, the goalkeeper. They're all good people, and they, they'd grown up. That, the most? That, they'd grown up playing together at, at, in the Canterbury District, okay. and Canterbury District was. A leader in developing young players, and then they generally either ended up at Bankstown or Canterbury Maryville. So, okay. so that, they had a very they had a coaching program long before anybody else ever thought about it, and that's why they produced such good juniors. But all of those people were very they were friends off the field in summer. Uh, they went out to uh, the northern beaches and had family picnics on the on the beachfront and. Yeah, enjoyed each other's company. And I remember a couple of times going to the cricket ground and meeting some of them out there and having a day at the cricket and enjoying a few drinks and relaxing and that's how it was. It was a very relaxed attitude and most of them the first team I played in, the forward line were all internationals but me. <laughs> and um and so but none of them you you would never have known that they'd all had these experiences because they were just knockabout blokes and uh, um, yeah, they were just just a delight to play with, and they made you feel welcome and positive. And uh, it wasn't until later on, after the, in the fifth year, I think, the trouble started to arise. But most of those players I've mentioned at that stage had either gone, and um, there was uh, they were their replacements. You know, weren't the same as they were in terms of the attitude. But they were all just good mates together, and, and that's why the club was so successful, as well as the fact that they. Very quick all of them were, all the four line were quick um, and uh, yeah just you know happy happy to be playing together and enjoying each other's company. so that's why it was a good team but the coach was a uh, made a big difference his name was Joe last so I've mentioned him before yeah. and he was Hungarian he lived for nothing but football and uh, expected the players to be exactly the same and um, I yeah, I remember he'd go through the team's performance, individual performances at a team meeting, and one of his favourite expressions was, you was nothing, 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 (laughs) and if you laughed and said, oh, (laughs) it went down well, he'd say, and you, double nothing. (laughs) Yeah, he was a great character, I I got on well with him and I liked him a lot, and I learned a lot from him, he was always on about ball skills and um, developing control of the ball and and yeah, you know, the typical Hungarian thing. And he'd done a university course in soccer coaching before he came here. And um, so, but he was—he was—he was delight. And uh, the way he spoke intrigued me, and the things he said were, were just were just worth listening to. You had to learn if you listened. And so that- um, yeah, that was that was one of the great experiences. And the, their officials always made me made me feel very welcome as well. Um, I, you know, I didn't go to a, I didn't, I didn't go to things like their beach parties in the summer. I, yep. I was, still, I didn't have any transports. So yep. I had, I just didn't go. And by then, I, I'd um, met this beautiful girl that I married, and so I was happy to stay on the south coast. But, but they were a very, very happy club and very successful. As a matter of fact, uh, I don't think people really un- appreciate just how successful they were from about 1956 until about 90, well, nineteen sixty two was their last or sixty one was their last big year and that's when the um the drain started and people like Johnny Watkins, Johnny Warren, Alan Westwater, um, Brian Smith all disappeared and it was um offers from other clubs and Canterbury never paid their players as much as other other clubs. Oh, okay. Um so so that was you know, I remember Johnny Watkins saying oh he he would never play for any club at Canterbury, but, you know, I mean, it, it all gets broken down because when they're offering you... See, at one stage, I, I was earning more when I was playing for South Coast. I was earning more to play a game of soccer than I was for a week's teaching, you know? Oh, wow. So, so, so you know, it made a difference to some lives, and Johnny Warren, I think, had uh, just completed his leaving certificate, and he was going through um, Newcastle Union, I think, at one stage. Yeah. Um, and... It made a big difference to his life. I mean, by being able, and and sometimes they, these clubs were pretty smart in that they tied up an educational scholarship with playing for that club, you know. So it changed your life. So so that's why Canterbury lost a lot of players, and then I think um, uh, some Greek um, entrepreneurs took over Canterbury Marigold and called it Canterbury Olympic, and from there then on it was in a downward spiral and. I, think it, I don't think it even has the name Canterbury now, now. It, or it might yeah, be called I'm, I'm Berries, sure. Berries or something. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it isn't Canterbury-Marrick Village. But uh, the club had an interesting history prior to that because at one stage they play, they combined with a team called Meadows, which, which was the maker of stoves. I don't know whether... Yeah, they were an they're industrial on, company. That's team, right. Weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, there was a team from Meadows and a team from Grace Brothers and a team from... Uh, Steelworks, Leicester had a team yeah. so so it was a different well that was in the thirties though that was before my time but um it was it's interesting uh, when you just consider how things changed and uh, but the the, quid, the you know the money started to talk and the money got bigger and bigger and bigger as the crowds grew so in in the association days when i we were playing for an I remember you'd, be, you'd sometimes in Sydney, you'd play in front of. 300 people because as I said we weren't a very successful team yeah. so even when you played say Leichhardt at Lambert Park you might only have 400 people to watch you well well, when the Federation kicked off they were drawing crowds of four to 5,000 for club games and then as you as you know by now that in 1963 South Coast drew 32,000 plus to the sports ground couldn't yeah. get everybody in <laughs> so um, yeah that was that was how it changed and uh, People, the Federation officials, did a marvellous job in promoting the game. And so the game changed and became more professional. And um, yeah, they've just come so far. I I think when I, and probably the reason I broke into it, was that soccer was at a a very low ebb when I came into it. And and by the time I left in 1970, um, I think we'd peaked and we were going down again. And it wasn't until 74 when they qualified. For the World Cup that you know they got somewhere back to where we should have been but the but the Federation just made such giant leaps and great changes to the game and the way it was presented and the way it was played but um and of course, in nineteen fifty nine um after all these Austrian players came with no transfer fees, FIFA banned australia, australia yeah. and and uh so any player that had a club grievance in Europe could come for for nothing. And so you had um, no transfer fees. All they would say to these players was, we'll pay you this and get you a job. And so they came in their droves. As a matter of fact, at one stage, I remember reading, in about 1962, um, of the 132 players required for the 12 Sydney teams, I think about 86 of them were were imports. And they're only about... Uh, about 50 Australians playing in the teams. Uh, it was just dominated by, you know, people who, and they were good players. I mean, uh, some really class players came, and um, in that time. And I remember a bloke called Willie Stevenson who was going to play for Arpia, and he got, he flew to Australia, and uh, he must have agreed to the conditions that they were offering him. Anyway, somebody apparently warned him that if he played in Sydney, he'd be banned for life he was a Scotsman and uh I think he wanted to play for Scotland but anyway he w- he then went back to England and became a star for Liverpool. Oh, Willie wow. Stevenson was he, you know. And so that's the sort of player that you you know, was looking at coming here and uh, some of the players I mentioned to you before, Ali Jeffrey was a real a really class act and uh players like Jimmy Kelly and um Ali Jeffrey, I mean they were they were stars, you know. And uh and they, they were unhappy with their club, or in Alec Jeffrey's case, it was something slightly different. But um, yeah, they, they were unhappy with their club and to get away from the club because the clubs most times wouldn't release them. Um, so they came to Australia where no transfer fees and they could be well paid for what they did as well.
0: And being a, a sort of different environment and
1: yes, a, a, yeah, well a, you know, with, pretty happy if, if you came from England, I think they had the ten pound immigration scheme running, so you could come for ten pounds. Um, and and you know some of them did, and and but it improved Australian football enormously, and there was so much to learn from these professional people. Um, some of the people that I met at South Coast United, I, even having had that wonderful experience at Canterbury, my learning pr- uh, pr- um, process was improved vastly by coming to South Coast United. So Leetland, so how
0: did you yeah, um yeah. how did you get to South Coast from Canterbury? Was it a was it a well, well, Canterbury, personal uh, decision that you went from Canterbury? Yeah. To oh, South yeah. Coast? Well Jim
1: Kelly phoned me and said, Would you consider coming to South Coast next year? And from the moment he came, he turned football on its head on the South Coast. And I I still lived on the South Coast. I travelled to Sydney to train with Canterbury yeah. twice a week. But I noticed, I, I, used to, I occasionally went down and watched South Coast United play when I was playing for Canterbury. And yeah, I could tell that there was a different feeling. And um, Leo, they employed Leo Baumgarten as their first coach South Coast United. Yep. And Leo was a brilliant player, but he needed players around him. And, and uh, Leo wanted the ball put to his feet and he wanted people to go into the positions he wanted them in. And so it didn't work out, I think, they lost their first six games and they lost them very badly, with Leo as coach. And I recall talking to Jim many years later and he arrived in May after they'd played what five or six six matches. So is this sixty one or
0: sixty two that he sixty one.
1: He, he came in May sixty one. Yeah, so sixty one he came and he said um that he watched them play and they were beaten seven or by a cower. And he said, I felt like getting on the plane and going straight back. Because <laughs> he, he was...
0: He was uh... I've got
1: nothing to look forward to. But, well, but I... being the pro that he was, he turned it all around. And he was getting a player here and a player there. This player could improve our team. And I think they ended up finishing 10th in the competition. But when he came, they were dead motherless last and looked certain to be, be demoted, which would have been a, a shame for South Coast football. But he turned it around with, you know, the uh, direction of the the club and the help of uh, the players that they had at that time. Yeah, after and, that, um, after
0: that poor start in in sixty one, he sort of turned it around to. Oh, he did. And, yeah, well, I think they were third yeah. last, but they, they got out yeah, of relegation. Yeah, they were.
1: And he always said that um, a bloke called Ronnie Burns, who played for Corrimal Rangers and Corrimal United, he said he was the saviour because apparently they played Sydney Austral that um, had uh, the sport when a ball's paddock. And Ronnie Byrne scored four goals. I think they won six-two or something, and and that saved them. They, <laughs> they weren't relegated because of that. But um, uh, and so, but then he he chinked away and he got money here. And I, he was a bloke. This, this is, <laughs> I, I think he's the fittest man that's ever played in this country, actually. And and it was a revelation to see the way he trained. He he'd coach the team to, to put the team through its training, and then when everybody went off, he. He'd do his own training then and put himself even harder. He also trained at Stuart Park. He was he coached the thirds, the seconds, and the firsts, and uh, that was four nights a week, five, because he always liked people to roll up the night before you played on the, the Friday just to beat and you know uh, have a little warm-up, warm and then that's it. Um, so it was virtually five days, but he, in his spare time, he used to train at Stuart Park, and particularly in the off-season. And I have never seen anybody as fit as Jim Kelly and as professional as he was. He always presented himself well in terms of his preparation for a game. And he was always trying to mentally improve himself as well. He he was a great reader of um, books that could make him um, get ideas about a variety of things. But in terms of fitness, he was light years ahead of anybody else at that time. And it stood out when he played. When he first came here... um, he was, you know, he never stopped. He was up, up and back, up and back, and um, yeah, he was, yeah, he was um, inspirational. That's the word the best used to describe him.
0: So, um, because to give a a little bit of background, from what I understand, he was was with that. Uh, hugely successful Blackpool team that oh, yes. had had yes, Stanley Matthews. So he was probably with yeah. one of the, I guess it was the Barcelona or Man United or Man Cities of the time. They were one of the best teams in England, weren't they? When
1: I think they, I think he said they always finished in the top six um, at the time that he was there, um, and they had some really great players. Uh, Matthews, of course, Billy Perry, who yep. came out here for a year, but Bill had a knee problem and. Uh, he he wasn't the player that he was on that fifty eight tour, but I saw them play in Sydney, uh, um, in fifty eight against the New South Wales team and Billy Perry was more impressive than Stanley Matthews. He was like a greyhounder um oh jeez, he was quick. And um, you know, he was the one to watch, you know, people were saying, Oh, this fella here on the left, we'll watch him and see so he was that good and uh but but um the funny thing was when Everton came in nineteen sixty four, I said to him on one occasion, must have been after the tour. And I said, what did you think of Everton? Because I think, in my opinion, they're the best team I've ever played against. And he said, I'll tell you what he said, what did you think of Blackpool in 58? And I said, oh, I thought they were a good side too. I said, but not as good as Everton. He said, Everton would have given us three start and beaten us to five. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's
1: what he thought of the difference in those few years.
0: it is here where we will stop in part one of episode 29. Please download part two of episode 29 as Barry continues to speak about his football journey. As always, thank you for listening and downloading this podcast. I'm your host, Travis. Goodbye for now.